Hello and welcome to episode number 16 of our podcast. My name is Elliot Greenman. I'm Alex Yenel. And this week's podcast, we were talking about more health-related topics, such as the coronavirus, mm-hmm. um, other viruses, spoke about cholera for a little bit. And we oh, we started talking actually a little bit about uh, homeostasis. Yeah, and allostasis, which yeah. I didn't really know much about. Mm. And so then, I'll have to relook, we'll have to relook at that again. Of course, naturally. And then what, what did we even end it on? More of the same, really, wasn't it? More of the same. And uh, I guess arousal, breathing, mm. and trying not to be too frazzled so we can learn uh, new information without being fed caca del toro. Exactly that. As always, Make sure you enjoy the podcast. And uh, if you do have any feedback, then obviously comment, email, or uh, get hold of us any other way. Mm-hmm. We love uh, human interaction and contextual interaction. Perambulations in Franglais. Allostasis refers to the process that main processes that maintain body systems, mm-hmm. such as blood pH or body temperature, uh-huh. within narrow operating ranges. That's it. Sounds a bit like homeostasis to me. Um, so all the variables from your body in terms of your temperature needs to be in a normal range. Your the blood of the pH, uh, the pH of the blood, all the different uh, electrolytes, all those kind of things. You can uh, homeostasis is as well your red bl- uh, white blood cell count, red blood cell count, B12 vitamin, all the rest like that. I think it's quite. Um, so uh, I was just reading without actually reading what I was um, going uh-huh. in on there. So mm-hmm. here it says. Homeostasis is the stability of systems that maintain life, mm-hmm. pH, concentration mm-hmm. of different ions, etc. Then allostasis is adaptation to changing external and internal environment. Mm-hmm. And then another thing says allostasis is changing set point, mm-hmm. compensated equilibrium, mm-hmm. extensive anticipation of demand, adjustment based on history, adjustment and accommodation. Carrier price, allostatic load, potential leads to pathology, potentially leads to pathology. Mm-hmm. Homeostasis, no pathology. Mm-hmm. Adjustment carries no price. Mm-hmm. No adjustment based on history. Ah, okay, so that's different, really. No, um, no or little anticipation of demand. Mm-hmm. Physiological equilibrium, mm-hmm. constant or oscillating set point. Mm-hmm. But yeah, because... There's always a negative feedback with an homeostatic uh, principle, really. So when your uh, thyro- thyroid gland produces thyroxine, the amount of thyroxine increases in your bloodstream, which actually uh, acts on your pituitary, which tends to uh, diminish the thyroxine-stimulating hormone, the TSH level, which actually loose, uh, diminishes the activity of your thyroid, which produces less thyroxine. And the fact that when the thyroxine re- re- reaches a certain level, it actually stimulates the pituitary to produce more TSH, which actually produces more, which stimulates the thyro- 
feed gland to produce more thyroxine and so on and so on so, so it's a bit like a sinusoidal basically so it's not a really static type thing but it's a sinusoidal so an allostatic thing so I've not really understood what the allostasis yeah. is so well, I'll have to read more about it then so it's like some kind of anticipatory load on the body and the fact that it's gonna it's yeah it leads to pathology compared to homeostasis is no pathology so it's when it's when the it's when the um, balance gets a bit dis distro distorted in one way or another basically what homeostasis no. or leading to pathology no well yeah the allostatic thing then what? If, if allostasis after a while leads to pathology homeostasis keeps the whole thing in in a normal bracket of um keeping life sustained basically mm, yeah because i guess when I, I was just trying to search up basically i was trying to search up like linked terms mm. yeah, to yeah, yeah. bring some additional points once you've mm -hmm, explained mm -hmm. one thing and uh um it was obviously kind of comparing allostasis to homeostasis mm -hmm. and it was coming up with uh like um, allostatic overload mm -hmm. or allostatic load whereas with homeostasis mm -hmm. homeostasis There's wasn't no really talking about overload or mm -hmm. load mm -hmm. um, so that's why I was like mm -hmm. it's like a little bit a little bit confused but what's um, mm -hmm. what's pathology like how would you say how would you define pathology mm -hmm. pathology well it's coming out of the homeostatic um norm basically the brack the homeostatic bracket once you come out of the homeostatic bracket it leads to pathology when the body function doesn't really work properly basically mm. to so make it quite simple almost like a imbalance or a dysfunction uh, that's it that's it yeah of whatever thing so that's what osteopathy is on about osteon being the root cause is a it's not the bone so it's not the Latin derivative, it's a, Lat it's a Greek derivative, osteon. And osteon is the, the root cause, the bare bone the, of, of things, basically. So patho And therefore, we can translate osteopathy as the belief that um, uh, imbalance in a musculoskeletal system leads to pathology. It might be a bit working in both ways because there's a structure and a function being a bit interrelated. Therefore, possibly pathology must lead to a change in the musculoskeletal balance, basically. So it works both ways, basically. Yeah. Okay. Or musculoskeletal imbalance can lead to pathology. Yeah. Yeah. And how would you define homeostasis? I know you kind of divided it. But I said it's just like that the different parameters and the different uh, measurements of the body functions that tend to uh, stay within a, bra an, 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 a bracket that actually is conducive with um, not too much pressure on the whole overall system. 
So your blood pH has to be very in a na very narrow thing. Your B12 vitamin can be in a very broad thing. Your the number of uh, white blood cells can be quite varied as well. Your uh, hemoglobin and your ferritin, your um, luteinizing hormone or your testosterone or whatever or your adrenal um, adrenal function like your DHEA has to be within a certain bracket basically in order to in order to uh, be conducive with um, life basically are there aren't there like homeostatic principles they must be some yeah I don't, I don't know I don't have them at, I feel like I've heard that somewhere that's it that's it yeah. that's it but I don't have them at, at hand yeah. possibly or in my mind as such but uh, yeah it's, that must be that really the, yeah. depending on different body functions and things it must be working like that really and how does that relate to let's say the current situation with uh, COVID-19 like how does homeostasis relate to overall health and ability to an immune system i guess well yeah that's it so i guess if we think that the allostatic load is actually leading in uh, of uh, in an imbalance in the homeostatic uh, parameters it actually we're already a bit imbalanced and your body is already struggling to actually try to correct that load and bringing back into a bit of a normal bracket and that's uh, energy and time and attention that is uh, taken to do something else and therefore it has maybe ramification when it's acute or or chronic or persistent and therefore possibly your immune response might be a bit affected due to your cortisol level so we talked about all the stress response all the rest and things so I, say, I guess the decrease the relative decrease in your cortisol secretion on a day-to-day -day basis when you're sustaining ongoing stress Uh, is possibly what an allostatic load must be overload i think i th i think what allostatic load means is i think actually what it means is it's a positive thing and it's a it's like a, a graph that goes up and you hit you hit almost like a a, a point plateau. A, a plateau uh -huh. like a sweet spot i think yeah and that load that allostatic load is like the desired Mm -hmm. stress load additional stress mm -hmm. load whether it's exercise mm -hmm. like breathing exercises or whatever mm -hmm. it is and that's a desired space but most people overdo it mm -hmm. and so that's the allostatic or over overload overload or underdo it or underdo it exactly okay. exactly so i need to look more I, in. I look to look more into that yeah i mean that's literally i haven't even read anything other yeah. than one thing earlier and looked at a graph but i think that's mm -hmm. what what it's okay, about yeah. and okay. the the reason why i asked about it was because our uh i was gonna say friend then but that might not be the right word um i wish friend now the aguilar <laughs> was saying was talking about how again he was saying like with all the virus stuff mm -hmm. having a body that functions well mm -hmm. and uh you know is open and free to move mm -hmm. um means that's basically what it's going to take to be able to not ensure but give yourself the best chance possible to not catch anything like the, mm -hmm. the virus or whatever yeah 
or or come up with the antibodies or whatever. But then he was like, allostasis, read about it. Because that's the thing, really. So none of us have got any uh, memory of that, or um, immune memory of that virus, because it's a new kid in the block. Basically, so the whole thing about having been exposed in the past to uh, different flus or different uh, uh, bacteria and things like that, we build some kind of uh, library in our immune system to be able to have a learned response, which actually is much faster and much better directed at uh, fighting those kind of infections, basically. And uh, the, the fact that that virus is actually really... Uh, different or new it actually is going to take an awful lot for your body to create that first response that first response mm. so I guess um, people who have comorbidity factors if you have a bad cardiovascular problem, if you have diabetes if you got asthma, if you had sarcoidosis, if you got uh, if you've had <laughs> if you're an alcoholic if <laughs> if you're a, a heroin addict all those kind of stuff well that's gonna actually hinder your ability to actually fight that virus and the likelihood of you having really um, the possibility of you having severe uh, symptoms after the initial flu-like symptoms is a bit higher basically and um, but yeah and I guess It depends a bit. How, uh, uh, what is your idea of health? How do you think your is a musculoskeletal system really uh, giving you that much of an idea about your immune response? Really, it depends a bit how you see it. Really, I'm not too sure. It would be interesting to hear a bit more for Naudi and how he's really looking at the whole the whole thing. Really. I think it's still the overall picture where you're you working on something that is good or using the trains and how they've evolved in our body yeah and then actually putting that into practice three that's four it, times it, a week it, you're getting your heart rate up you're probably opening your body so that lymphatic drainage and things like that that's is probably it, it. functioning much better putting less stress on your body and then when maybe it, reducing when stress it depends because i think some people might be might re have uh, too much stress when we do mm. too much exercising yeah. and what is too much exercise for one person might not be the same and then the reason why people do the exercise is a whole lot and then of course now the being the best into what he does is actually um, wanting to advertise the fact that if you do his way of doing you're going to be immune to anything and you're bulletproof really yeah That's, you might be less likely to do the whole lot, really. It would be interesting to see when Naudi gets a bit the whole uh, virus, how he's gonna fend for it, really. And that's the thing, really. Is he, yeah, is, is, is it his way? How is it we correlate his way of going about the training for his musculoskeletal system and his ability to actually uh, deal with a new uh, virus that has never been seen before by humankind. I'm not too sure. Hmm. There's some interesting stuff, but like 
what I've read about that virus is the younger you are, the least likely you are to be um, to die. I'm not too sure if it's you're less likely to be poorly or very poorly, or the more likely you are to have a mild uh, form of the disease, or uh, the more likely you are to not actually display any sign of the disease. Because there's plenty of ways to get the whole thing, really. Some people are not going to even show any signs that they're, uh, they're carrying the virus, really. And others are going to have mild effect on it. And some of us are going to have pretty severe um, flu-like. And we're not even too sure because we talk about uh, pulmonary system, but actually it could be other places, really. It could be, I don't know, in your meninges. It could be... <laughs> in your liver, it could be anywhere, really. We're not too sure. It's a new thing, really. And it evolves, and the main problem is that when it, it is in people, uh, and we know about... Because that's the thing, really. Viruses are not really living things. They just have some kind of... I'm not too sure the COVID, how it works, whether it's DNA or RNA, but you got only some kind of capsule and it's an administering um, a mechanism to in, uh, go onto a cell and administer that... Uh, um, ribonucleic acid or desoxyribonucleic acid into the host cell basically and then we the the whole dna ten, or rna tends to hijack the immune the um, um, functional process that the uh, nucleus of the cell is actually going through To, in order to copy uh, the fabrication of viruses. Okay? And then we're not too sure whether it influences some viruses like uh, AIDS, for example, uh, uh, HIV, uh, not AIDS, but HIV virus, tend to, once inside the cell, you, you, the immune system cannot detect it. But other infection, when they infect the cell, the cell is actually shining and saying, beep, 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 I've been infected, in a way. And then, therefore, the immune system, that's the whole thing. So we, we don't know any of the patho, or we know very little about the pathophysiology of the virus, really. That's mm. one of the, well, and I'm no virologist <laughs> at all, really. And I'm not even too sure how we've come up with a test to actually test for uh, the virus and to know that it's that one, really. So there must be some kind of marker, there must be some kind of uh, thing, you must um, dissolve the whole lot and it must be about the DNA of the whole lot who must be coming into something that, I don't know, shines or, <laughs> or some kind of marker that doing the stuff, really, compared to any of the other, you know. You take the little pond or the little marigot, the little... Um, uh, because it's been raining a lot, type thing. On your way back home, you look in the gutter and you take a, a, a bit of water. There's billions of phages. So it's like uh, billions of viruses. They are really, already. Uh, Seawater, there's... There's viruses all over the seawater already. So how is it we differentiate the two in that test? How do we multiply the whole lot? How do we go about doing the stuff? I'm not even too sure how it works really. Mm. We're still working. They're still working on a on a vaccine or something like that. Because that's the thing really. It's, It's there to, once it's there and then the, the world population gets infected 
some of the world population gets infected, the whole thing is going to be there for a while, basically. A year, two years, all those kind of things, really. So... We the media talks a lot about a lot about people dying, but what about people who survive? What about the experience of people when they've been sick? How did they feel about the whole lot? The number of people who are infected, which we don't know, all the rest. So um, the uncertainty is so wide; it's almost not even worth talking about it and reporting about it. Really, that's the thing. Really, mm. so cough in your hand or in your handkerchief or in your sleeve and then wash your hands and try not to well gather too much in uh, uh, big public places where there's lots of people really that's it really so uh, closing the schools stopping uh, big gatherings uh, preventing people from traveling with the planes all those kind of stuff and then slowing the whole thing down a bit is quite interesting really because that's the only way we can stop the spread it doesn't prevent you from catching it really that's the thing really mm. so it's it's like it's like the flu Every year, we don't talk too much about what to do when there's a flu. We, there's no big hype about the whole lot. There's quite a lot of people. I think there's four, six, four, five hundred, six hundred thousand people who die every year of the flu worldwide. That's quite a few few people, really. What was it you were just saying about cholera? Was it cholera? Yeah, yeah, but yeah, it's not too too many. But there's been loads of people in Yemen because mm. there was a war in Yemen. So there was a couple of millions of people in Yemen who contracted cholera, but there's only 4,000 people who died. So it's a very small morbidity. Actually. But that's... that's um We've not talked about that too much because it's only Yemeni people who we don't really care already. You know? It's like if there's an English person who's got a little virus, everybody's having a massive hype about the stuff, really. Two million people have had waterborne type thing because of malnutrition and all the rest and thing, really. So, I mean, really. And yeah. So it's, but who cares? Just and that's the, the, when you said the word cholera, that shocked me because it's like cholera is something that we. You know, we've dealt with. We don't need to talk about cholera anymore. Yeah, yeah. And then, as you say, because mm-hmm. we don't really care. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we don't really care about mm-hmm. the people in Yemen. No, and but we've dealt with cholera. So that's a really interesting thing to actually talk about because it's a um, it's a bit about sanitation. Hmm. So that's the whole stuff, really. So I don't know, in one of the previous uh, um, podcasts we've done, we talked about, I talked about, uh, to you, that uh, book by Darian Leader, about why people get ill. And in that book, there's a reference about a, a research in America who looks at the um, influence of medical in the amount of influence the medical intervention has had on the decrease in mortality from infectious disease since the 1900s. And it's uh, not that much. It's just 5%, according to that research. And then the 95% is to do with hygiene. Oh, wash your hands. Wash your hands. There's very good ways of washing your hands. And you do the whole lot, 20 good seconds, your wrist, all the things, and saying, and then you touch the whole lot, and then that's it, it's done. <laughs> so uh, that's it, really. There's, uh, hygiene is really important. And then sanitation. 
That's it. Mm. I think there's not much cholera. And we, I live in Western Bird. And in Western Bird, there's a whole Ford, uh, there's a Western Bird Arboretum. And a man who did the Arboretum, Mr. Holford, uh, made his fortune when the last cholera epidemic happened in London. And in the middle of London, the well that they were getting their water got actually Uh, contaminated with all the well runaway water from toilets and all the rest and things really and therefore people got cholera okay and he made his fortune by actually segregating the fresh water supply and uh, brown water thing and then no more cholera things in london So, actually, sanitation is a very good pressure on uh, preventing people from catching things, okay? And then after, I think lifestyle acts a bit, and the way we actually, there's more overweight people in the world than there is uh, underweight people. Uh, today, in 2020, okay? So, I think the access to good food, nutritious food, and a whole lot, so that all, maybe there's a allostatic... <laughs> type thing in the background a bit is helping people to actually fight diseases really you're not uh, two or three stone underweight and uh, with a bit of scurvies and the whole lot and thing and you got hepatitis on top of it and then the bubonic plague comes along and then boof you wipe I don't know like um, I think maybe half of 50% of certain cities got wiped by uh, the bubonic plague, really, when it came in, really, from those fleas. <laughs> That's it, really. Gengis Khan came, and he brought it with him, and then we were not, nobody had anything to, they could do about the wallot. But it was not very well sanitized, it was not very hygienic, and people's um, um, lifestyle were pretty bad, really, because... Uh, by the time Gengis Khan was here, uh, people were starving all the time, really. You know, you, by the time you were 40, you'll be really old and hopefully you'll have no teeth. Because having teeth by the time you're 40 is a freaking pain in the neck. Because you get a rotten tooth and you got a massive abscess and then it's in your freaking brain, you die, really. <laughs> so the least teeth you had, the better, really, you know. So all those things, really, that, I think that's... There's quite a lot, really, mm -hmm. about all that, really. The advice for that virus is wash your hands, cough in front, and do the wool. Like, put it in the bin. And, and less human contact as well. And, and try to... Yes, that's it, that's it. So how to self-isolate yourself, really. So... Um, Uh, some on the Facebook uh, group on in the school my kids go to somebody put oh, don't bring your kids if they are sick at the school because uh, some of us have got vulnerable uh, um, people ar around us yeah well If you are vulnerable, if you are vulnerable, you'd better uh, take measures and take responsibility and uh, do that accordingly, really. Because that's the thing, really. It's, 
we don't know any of the whole lot. You actually isolate yourself and you don't get into too much contact with your grandchildren or if you got premature babies or if you're really asthmatic, well, uh, you make sure you, you do things really and you try to limit things. You get rid of your holiday. You do those kind of stuff really. Uh, we're not going to let you, we're not going to prevent other people to getting on the flight because you're a bit uh, poorly and you don't want to catch the virus. It's, it's completely weird, really. Way of thinking, really, in a way. So, yeah, you don't want to catch it or you're worried you're going to catch it. Try to minimize the contact with other human beings uh, so, uh, somehow. Somehow. Uh, don't touch uh, work, uh, surfaces, uh, door handles. Uh, when you start to look at all those kind of stuff, there's, like these bacteria everywhere. Your keep, your kitting. We got our mobile phones. That's full of germs everywhere. Mine is broken. There must be germs every, I can wash it. There's cracks in the whole lot. There's germs in there all the time. <laughs> okay. You touch my phone and I've got the virus. You catch it. Yeah. If you put it to your mouth or to your eye, all the rest. So mm -hmm. you need goggles, you need a respirator, you need, you must not have any cuts on you, all the rest. You, well, you go about with a thing to bleach everybody, all the rest is, I don't, it's, it's difficult. That's a pandemic and a virus is really easily caught, really. Mm. I sneeze, you get it from here, really, because my sneeze comes all the way to you, really. The stats of it being fatal are, like, so low under 60, though, isn't it? It's like... Yeah, 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 yeah. So, but under 60, if you don't have a cardiovascular problem, if you don't have diabetes, if you don't have another uh, uh, factor, which is actually making you weaker, really. If you mm. got like a, a Marfan syndrome, if you got like a, I don't know, like you got your adrenal is completely bonkers, all the rest and thing. If you got like MS and you're on a high dose of medication, or you're, a, you've got a, a seronegative rheumatoid arthritis and they give you a bit of a neck Protizing inhibiting factor. Uh, well, that, that's not gonna, you're not going to fend super well because they are hacking at your immune system to prevent it from uh, uh, dealing with your own system, really. So that you, you're in the pickle, really. That's, and the more people are exposed, the more people who have secondary or secondary who have health issues are going to be exposed, really. That's the thing, really. So at the moment, we've been uh, exposed. The people who've been exposed in the UK have been going skiing, really. Okay, uh, people who've got MS, they don't really. Well, some of them do, and thank God for them, really. But most uh, people who come back from uh, Italy with the virus, they were quite everyday people. Not to say that people with MS are not everyday people. Mm. Okay, but they didn't have uh, other path uh, pathologies that we know of, really. Okay. And that's the whole problem, really. So if your children have been uh, premature, for example, or things like that, or your child is really poorly, uh, well, and he catches the whole lot, well, uh, that's, we don't know. <laughs> that's the thing, really, okay? I don't know, last time I had the flu, uh, it was not, I was not super flash, really, you know? And it is not really easy, really. Uh, when I had a uh, meningitis B, I was not flash either, really, okay? Uh, when I had measles, I was not... Meningitis B. Yeah, meningitis yeah. B, yeah. When I had measles or mumps, when I had rubella, when I had German measles, when I had chickenpox, all the rest, uh, you're not flash, really. You're having quite bad... You're not having a good day, really. It's not really... It's not super nice, really. 
And I think that's where uh, it's a bit tricky, really. I think we are. People have a view of schools as well, don't they? Like they obviously don't want their kids to get it, and then schools are dirty in general. Like kids, it's impossible kids to put get. their finger up their bum hole and yeah. then back in their nose and their yeah. eye and all yeah. the rest and thing. And how many times your kid is more likely to get an eye infection for his own butthole than for anything else? Really, that's the thing. Really, so yeah, they put their hands everywhere and think because that's their kids. That's it. Really, so yeah, they're gonna spread things. So don't go to the hospital to. To visit your uh, your uh, grandma who's on uh, who's having terminal cancer treatment who's really poorly really at the moment because the kid is, might transfer the whole thing to you and whatever else as well because <laughs> he might come with just like some E. coli because he's, he's touched his butthole and then he's gonna uh, put his hand on his uh, grandma's face and that's it really she gets the shits and then he, she dies really because that's how it goes it's bacteriological warfare really And it's super difficult because it's invisible. We don't see it, really. And all the things we do, we are not used to uh, doing anything to make it better, really. And this kind of... I've been thinking a lot about the conversation we had, I think, like, early last year yeah. about antibiotics. Yeah. What, like... What does this... Like, there's always going to be things like this coming along, right? There's always going to be mutations of That's a virus it. or a bacteria That's that we it. haven't been able to That's it. vaccinate or or build an antibiotic for. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, so like, what what can people do? I guess the hygiene and sanitation things. Like hygiene, sanitation. And thing really that's and uh, there's a few prophylactic type thing you protect yourself really if you don't want to get the clap you put a condom and that's it really you know, if you don't want to <laughs> that's this simple things really it's not very complicated and that minimizes your chance to getting the stuff really that's it really um We talked about cleaning, the cleaning staff in hospital needing to be paid top dollar and trained like SWAT teams, basically, <laughs> in order to be able to, uh, well, clean under the bed as well and in the nooks and crannies and it needs to be really well before there's a new patient coming in you don't want the new patient to come and to catch the stuff the other patient had before really so not to say that the, the job is not well done properly really okay there's maybe lots of places where it's done really well really but if we were increasing the income substantially of people who actually clean hospitals and we were upping their training to Formula One or avionic uh, type standard with checklist and a proper product and very uh, thoroughly done um, we would save an awful lot and that's soap it's cleaning product It's not complicated. It's done off the shelf. You can go to Tesco today and get it, really. And you can really clean the wallet. And then maybe there's actually not that much bleach left in Tesco's because people know that they need to bleach all the whole thing, really. And anyway, that's it's those kind of stuff, really. Antibiotics and vaccines are uh, really interesting, but bacteria have been here for... A couple of billion years, really. So, 2,000 million years. Okay? A little while. Maybe mm. even more. 
I'm not too sure. And they've been competing with yeasts for a long time. And oh, penicillin and some of the uh, antibiotics are yeast derivatives. Oh, strange. I wonder why. Type thing. And therefore, we put pressure on a certain population of bacteria who are quite happy. They got a 20 minute half-life, really. So every 20 minutes, there's a new generation of uh, bacteria. Uh, humans is uh, 25 years. So that's quite a few more 20 minutes, really. For bacteria, the whole uh, population is exponential from one bacteria to two to four to eight to 16. Bang, 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 bang. And if you got like two million, well, uh, you got uh, four million and then you got 16 million and then the whole thing goes in three hours and the right temperature is gone. Then you have a crazy amount of mutations and no time. And then you get uh, more likely to have mutation because you put pressure with different uh, things really. So it's to use it uh, in a parsimonious fashion and antibiotics are very good, <laughs> very good. It's just the use we have of it which not really up to scratch, that's all. Antibiotics are great. We are very happy to have antibiotics, really. Mm. We talked about, what's his name, Mr. Rockefeller, whose son died of a bacterial infection. So he was a billionaire, but in 1910, there was no, there was no antibiotics. So all the money in the world could not buy him antibiotics because it didn't exist. And all of us on 25 grand, which are, we are all part of the one percent in the world population in terms of income, we all have antibiotics at our fingertip. So that's, we should be really grateful for antibiotics. Mm -hmm. No doubt. For sure. But the use of it is not really, could be a bit better. And a lot of the uh, hygiene and sanitation in certain places where people gather who are quite poorly needs to be a bit more up to scratch. But it's difficult because we are all dirty motherfuckers, basically. Because <laughs> that's it, we got bacteria everywhere. It's really difficult. Cleaning your hands properly is really difficult. And uh, cleaning somewhere for it to be really well uh, decontaminated is very difficult. And if you leave one little bit, that's it. It's done. You have to be super thorough. So no cosomial or, or I think I'm not sure. You, maybe it's not an English word as well because I'm getting confused with those stuff sometimes. But uh, uh, infection you're going to get from surgery, infection you're going to get from going to hospital, all those kind of stuff are usually not the nicest because the, the bacteria are really really resistant they are really aggressive and you're already well you're well you're in hospital so you don't go to hospital uh, to get to, to get on a holiday really <laughs> it's because you're shitting poorly really so it's not really helping really yeah so it's it's there's, there's too, too much in uncertainty of what that virus is there's too much uncertainty of how people are going to respond there's too much uncertainty of all that well virus type thing how much mutation there's going to be uh, when it's exposed to certain uh, uh, people and the rest and how is it going to offend really so and I don't know enough because I'm not a virologist I've got no idea whether it's a a retrovirus or a phage or whatever like a coronavirus I've got no idea what it is really how it functions and seeing whether how is it gonna hack on my uh, on my 
DNA and all my, in my nucleus and all the whole thing to try to reproduce itself really and I guess it takes two weeks for us to be able to start to show symptoms for those who want to show symptoms that's it really so it's tricky it's yeah. it's we have to be a bit uh, cautious with all those stuff and and yeah if you are vulnerable I think it's uh, important to really do your due diligence and take responsibility for protecting yourself that's it or and telling your loved one that uh, they need to protect you as well and everybody needs to be at the page and I'm pretty sure the NHS uh, uh, there must be some number you can call to be able to get more information about the whole lot and you can clarify the stuff so that mm -hmm. you are it's information again really you need to get information and the more information you get the more the surer you are about how to proceed really and what to do about it really but it's likely to be with us for a couple of years really mm. well the the swine flu and the bird flu is same, exactly the same thing wasn't it it was with us for yeah, quite a while quite a while and saying yeah. and then that's it after how do we yeah bird flu swine flu how is it crossing all the uh, species all the rest and thing is always a tricky one really I'm, mm. I'm not entirely sure really I've got a bit of a few ideas really but but yeah what, uh, what are those ideas? it would be quite interesting to do a bit of research on uh, people who do uh, functional pattern and see how how better they fend uh, with the virus and whether it's to do with their exercise regime I think I think that's going to be unbelievably hard to actually prove, isn't it? Because as you say, if you if you're young and you don't have, you know, or your diabetes is under control and all these other things are are absent, like uh, breathing or respiratory issues, etc. I think you're probably going to be relatively well equipped that's to it, that's it, that's it. fight it off anyway. Fight off exactly. Mm. So um, yeah. And who knows, maybe one of their kettlebells will have it on them and then they'll all get it. That's it, that's it, that's it. <laughs> because it's too... How do you get in the gym with bodily fluid, with sweat? Is it going through your sweat? Is it mostly through your tears? Because you apparently you no pain, no gain. And then you need to cry a little bit when you exercise because otherwise it's not working. All the rest, really. Those things, really. And is it when you huff and puff? <laughs> Is it in your hair or the rest? I'm not too sure really how it how it works really. Mm. But it's yeah, I'll have to look a bit more into that. Interesting. Allostasis and homeostasis and yeah. the difference between the two basically because it sounds like quite an interesting. Uh, yeah, definitely. In, definitely. Interesting uh, idea really, especially coming from an osteopath. It sounds like it's quite osteopathic as well. If there is. Some possibilities that the musculoskeletal system uh, imbalance are creating pathology, <laughs> which I'm not too sure, but, or whether pathologies create imbalance in the musculoskeletal system. Who knows, really? But. Mm. Do you not believe in that? You don't believe that an imbalance in the body, or you are you? Is that not something that you? Agree no, no, no. With? It's something. Is that the whole thing, really? Is it? How is it you influence a quite complex and complicated uh, system, really? 
in order for it to go back into an homeostatic uh, balance, really. Yeah. The state, really. That's the but, thing a bit, really. But do you not believe that an imbalance in a musculoskeletal system would lead to pathology? Um, or could lead? Or do, do, well, you, do you think it's behind the... Uh, it's a bit deeper than just the imbalance in the body? So the pathology could be, let's say, something causes an imbalance in yes, I said, I said, the musculoskeletal body, but that thing that's causing that imbalance yeah. is also causing the pathology. Yeah, or they're yeah, all yeah. working together. Oh, to well, cause together. It. Yeah, the main problem is that still that mind-body problem a bit. So I don't think it's... Well, yeah. Being an osteopath, I try using musculoskeletal uh, techniques to restore some kind of homeostatic uh, uh, balance, basically. So if you had like a disc problem, all those kind of stuff, the different techniques and the mechanics, I look at the whole way. I tend to reduce a bit the um, fluid uh, concentration and the whole hydrostatic pressure there is on certain nervous system, uh, structures, which actually diminishes the amount of pain which restores the bit of function the more function the more drainage the more drainage the least the more you can fulfill your expectations the more you fulfill your expectations the least cort the more cortisol the more cortisol the more you deal with inflammation properly the less pressure the more mechanical dang, dang, dang. so yeah I don't think it's yeah, there's more research needed in those things really from a scientific point of view I think it's quite a difficult thing to completely segregate the mind and the body really and I'm just saying uh, for one thing or another really but and how quickly does it happen really so the way you use your arm uh, with repetitive uh, strains and uh, over a 50 year period of doing the same work you might you might uh, have changed the way your uh, elbow is actually structured really and um, your radiohumeral uh, joint might actually be arthritic by then really or or is it to do with that really what is the cause of arthritis if it's is it an overuse or uh, too much use or is it the uh, maybe the lack of uh, mitigation of the uh, effects the overuse is going to have on the joint see i mean really there's mm. plenty with all that, you need to really talk about your mode of reality almost really and how is it you go about seeing that really. Do you think you can influence that or do you think it's just a given and it just happens to you and it's genetic and your de the deterministic way of looking at it really. So deterministically speaking, I doubt uh, balance, imbalance in the musculoskeletal system is creating pathology or vice versa it's not really it's not it's not it's, it's not determined. it should not be deterministic really it's yeah, not yeah. it's not it's only one possibility out of many really it's and, and, and it's quite a tricky thing you know it was created in in 1874 osteopathy was created in 1874 and by physicians and at the time they were bleeding people to make them better or they were giving them mercury or lead <laughs> Oh, I'm going to bleed you a little bit and you're going to feel so much better. 
that type of thing. So lots of people were actually dying, like left, right, and center. And um, I should read a bit more Andrew Taylor Steele's uh, biography. But I think he lost a couple of his the member of his family to infections. <laughs> basically and and they were bone setters and barbers and you know is that whole thing about like the wild west really it's a bit like remedies and potions and all the rest and things really. so uh, there was a bit of science in the whole lot really but medicine at the time was actually quite an interesting thing it was not very scientific really <laughs> Medicine was not very scientific in the 1870s, really. And the guy who actually invented uh, osteopathy was a doctor. But he's not a doctor to the standard we have doctors now, because it's <laughs> not. Doctors now are uh, men of science, really. Mm. Or so they want to be, really, because I think they're a bit uh, emotional at times, really. And I don't think there need to be much emotion in science, really. Well, we can look at the science of emotion, but when it comes to your doctor, he must not be too emotionally driven. But that's another story. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a bit tricky, the whole question. You booby trap me a little bit. There. I, I often but, find uh, with stuff like that, with the, like the, you know, the imbalance leading to pathology yeah. on allostasis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm guessing allost allostatic overload. I often find it just that's like it's all over in science where it's very determined like there's so many deterministic statements mm. or determined statements mm -hmm. and although there's probably a really strong correlation mm -hmm. at times that just hasn't put us in the right place mm -hmm. like painkillers I know we bang on about it but painkillers is a classic example mm -hmm. it's like you don't it's determined that painkillers do an unbelievably good job at killing pain uh -huh. like there's Like they're, they're insanely good, mm -hmm. but to give them to every single person who's experiencing pain. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Oh, and it depends which type of painkillers, but I guess mm. your encephalines do a really good job. So your pain, your pain gate system is what actually need to be stimulated really. So if the painkiller is huge like your little finger and red with a bit of a tip in green he must be like freaking aggressive to pain so he's gonna be so much better even if it's sugar coated and there's nothing at all in it you're gonna feel it so there's a bit of a placebo effect again yeah. really so even in painkillers there's a placebo really the boxing of it all the But way that, the box goes and how it comes if it's a generic one it's bland it's white it doesn't look like it does bugger all really there we Compared go to, that's it that's, that's it. the so, determinism or that's the that that's how undetermined deterministic something or humans are that's it that's it that's it that's yeah. it you cannot uh, say with that there's going to be that much it depends the way it's administered it depends the belief system of the person it depends all the stuff it's a uh, complicated and complex uh, interaction really it's there's so much more than meet the eye really and scientific research is interesting in that process really but there's so much more really mm. and that's uh, where the therapist and the patient um, or humans interacting with each other tend to and the language we use and the story we all share and all those kind of stuff adds an over an, an, an awful lot to You know, if you have very good rapport with your patients, the prescription you give them is working so much better than when you don't have rapport. 
So, you come to the doctor and he's straight away, you can't stomach him and he's a, he's a bit arrogant and he's a bit condescending and all the stuff is a bit rushed and he's uh, at the end of his tethers because he's seen already 50 patients today, all the rest and thing. And then you don't like the way he's interacting with you. The prescription he's going to give you is not going to be very, you're going to have more side effect and thing really. It's, I mean, it's how emotional the whole thing becomes in a way really. Okay. So we say we don't want doctors to be too emotional, but we want them to be very aware of the fact that their patients are in an emotional state that is quite suggestive uh, at the time when they come to see them, really. And that's something they can capitalize on, really. And that's what a good therapist capitalizes on, really, because you are not there to get on with your patient or not, really. You're there to uh, provide him with an ability to restore his homeostatic uh, balance, really. And, and that's maybe a different way of going about doing the stuff, really. So your needs, your wants, all those kind of stuff, really. And all the little dragons, the little animals in your head and if you've lost your dad a week ago and you're seeing patients and it's all fine as long as they got venereal problem and chlamydia and uh, and uh, gallstones but the one who comes who's bawling his eyes off because of his dad having just died well it becomes super difficult for you to be able to detach yourself from that person mm. and therefore your judgment and the way you're going to administer things is going to influence uh, positively or negatively on your interaction and uh, uh, restoration of the well-being and the health of that patient. It becomes, uh, it's a minefield. There's, mm. there's far too many, too many variables, basically. But there's different models and different framework. And we talked about all, we talk about all those all the time and that human-given approach. And yes, osteopathically, it's interesting, really. But I don't know, physios, chiropractor, it's a bit, it's all a bit the same, really, in a way. Well, loads of people, loads of teachers and professors and things like that have had great, great, um, great things to say by using that approach. So it's like, it's just human interaction. Human it's, interaction. It's an approach that works for That's anything it. where you're, That's it. like if you're in a managerial position, I would imagine learning some of the basic stuff or, or doing the first year course mm-hmm. would probably be quite beneficial. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very, yeah. So you, it's quite a, a human-centered approach, which gives us an idea uh, how to uh, in, to diminish the arousal level of uh, the protagonist into that uh, interaction, and that and that uses that helps us to use our rational mind a little bit more, really, and that's quite interesting. Uh, saying we can set realistic goals about things, we can. But you need to build rapport, you need to gather the right information, and then you need to set the goals that are realistic about things, really. That's it, really. And, uh, and that's loads into that, really. Again. Mm. Yeah. Health, health disease. So, just... Because um, uh, I, I was really reading a little bit the other day I, I stumbled upon something by looking at different pathologies and things like that I was looking at um, uh, a branch of medicine which is which deals with how come people stay healthy say that again how come people stay healthy mm. 
Rather than how come people get ill. And that's quite, um, um, that's quite an interesting uh, thing again, really, to be able to look at it from different, the opposite direction almost, really. And that's, yeah. Um, would we get that much funding if we were studying people who've been smoking for 85 years who die by falling in the stairs and banging their heads in a bloody last step, really? Or do we get funding for research on people who, in their uh, late twenties, with a young family, die of lung cancer? In a way, so a lot of the money, the way we get funding and the way we uh, get the money to do some research is because of uh, um, uh, suffering, solving problems. That's it, that's it. The person that has been dealing with, uh, who has had very, maybe what we look upon at the moment, uh, certain behaviors that are maybe not conducive to good health for years and get away with it are not people we, well, <laughs> can empathize with very, very well, really. But, I don't know, we had a family friend who died in her past her hundredth birthday and she had been smoking for 85 years, two packs of cigarettes a day and she drank a good half bottle of uh, scotch. She had been in the sun most of her life, she was like, and her skin was like a baby. I don't think she had any stains on her lungs and uh, I think she died because she was having a fag outside and she slipped and uh, <laughs> so maybe smoking killed her in the end really, <laughs> but not in a way we would think really. Yeah. How come that lady and her uh, sack Psychological profile and her DNA and all the rest, her lifestyle habit and whole family tree and things like that is not really studied to know how come she's not having the effect really. So do we deal with people at the uh, top of the bell curve or do we talk about people who are maybe on the, on the one end of the bell curve really? Mm. Those things really, that's the yeah. thing really. Is it about pathology or is it about health? Is it about disease or is it about... Well, is it about it's a tricky cycle to break though, isn't it? Because it's it, like it, you, you get the funding because you have a problem that you need to solve. That's it. And, 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 and you make everybody emotional about the stuff and therefore they feel like their moral compass is actually uh, helping them to actually get into action and then uh, dispend with some of their spare cash for that research because we see emaciated uh, donkey on the wall uh, uh, poster as well because you can do that as well. You can put a, a bad looking dog on the wall lot for uh, human cancer and then people do give less, give more. So like we can be with marketing and advertising, we can be swayed towards uh, towards giving more money, really. But people who who never smoked and they end up with lung cancer, everybody is pissed off because it's not fair. And the ones who, but yeah, that's it, that's it. It's, I think it's really that human nature a bit, really, uh, okay. And yeah. and therefore the. The science has been, is ending up looking in one direction to solve the problem. Compared to looking maybe at, at all the, the bastards who were able to smoke all their life and never die of lung cancer. How come? 
that could be quite interesting to know what is actually protecting them. I don't know, where is it that protection comes from? Really? Is it luck? <laughs> Because I don't know, cancer might be a bit of a random mutation, really. But, or is it that random? Is it pushed a bit by certain carcinogenic substances that the tobacco is bringing, really? So, uh, um, if, if smoking was really causing cancer, we would all have cancer when we smoke. But some of us don't smoke and get cancer, and some of us smoke an awful lot and don't get cancer. So there's obviously a bit more to it than meet the eye, really. Mm. And how come, really? What is happening, really? I'm not too sure whether we get the right answers by doing the research we do at the moment. And I don't think we're, we're interacting in a healthy fashion to uh, generate health in the way we go about doing it at the moment. And, and, and we can't really correlate that easily. Different things. There's definitely more to it than meet the eye, really. And that placebo and nocebo effect is really very important. And possibly my, my uh, family friend enjoyed every cigarette she was having all day long. And she was maybe breathing and distressing and doing the stuff. And her idea about smoking was, uh, well, from a hundred years ago. <laughs> she died like 10 years ago. So it's like, of, she was born in 19 bloody 10, really, type thing, really, in a way. So, like, the idea about smoking, you know, you used to have that in your ration as a mili, as a mili. You would go to the military, they'll give you uh, five packs of fags uh, every week, really. <laughs> Or seven packs uh, every week, really. <laughs> We've changed quite a lot, really, yeah, in yeah. our way of looking at it, really, so... I'm not, I'm not too sure yeah. where the stuff is really. What, how come some people are not displaying any symptom with the virus we're uh, dealing with at the moment, that COVID-19? And how come others are? And how come others are really poorly, really? <laughs> what's, what's differentiating people like that, really? Difficult. The whole epidemiological study out of that is uh, interesting, but it's always a bit maybe skewed in in one direction because we look at it from uh, we want to correlate different things. You got cardiovascular problems, therefore you're gonna you're gonna. Well, yeah, no, you're maybe more likely, and it skews a little bit the bell curve. But still, some people with cardiovascular problems who are in their 80s are not gonna even display the virus. But it's less likely than if you're seven year old and you don't have any problem and therefore the thing you there's more likely to have less seven year more seven year olds who don't display any sign of the virus than they are eighteen year olds with cardiovascular problem. That's all. After it's how do you know it's you? That's the thing really. It's how do you assess the risk you have really? How is it that you assess it in light of the different factors there are, really? It's like, I'm not even too sure we can compute that, really. It's yeah. so, there's so much variables, really. It's becoming, it's like a complete head fuck, really. But there's lots of, you know, like, lots of thought behind that, really, because it's, But we don't like to be poorly as well, because we don't like to suffer. We don't like our loved one to suffer already. Mm, of course. <laughs> And I was saying to my mate on the phone last night who did the, our new branding, 
about the curve in yeah. the in the back yeah. and I said it's actually supposed to be quite straight which yeah. obviously you said isn't completely true but I know yeah. it's supposed to be straighter than what most people have yeah, yeah. and I um, mean it depends but from from front to back your spine is to be straight otherwise you mm-hmm. go scoliosis mm-hmm. yeah but, but when you look from the side uh, you have different curves you've got kyphosis and scol and and lordosis mm-hmm. So but got, I, oh. I I thought that was supposed to be in like a well functioning human, yeah. relatively straightened out. Yeah, I think that's I think that's something like kyphosis, like combating kyphosis within the yeah. functional patterns is yeah. something that they're really keen on because they're all, they're very keen about strengthening your diaphragm. That's it. First and foremost, that's the first thing they'll get anyone mm-hmm. to do. Well, actually, you're relaxing your diaphragm, but that's another story. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've been three times and it's mainly been getting in different positions doing dive, from, like, a lot of dive yes, from that's it, that's it. Yoga has been uh, uh, around for 4,000 years and that's what they do as well. That's the, the main principle of yoga, isn't it? Pranayama, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and he was saying, what I thought it was supposed to be curved. Obviously, now I realise that I'm wrong in what I said, but I was like... Yeah, it's funny how there's it's funny how there's misinformation out there. Me saying some of that, yeah. and I was like, "But we live in like a time where it's like we have never ever been able to share information, or we've never been able to share information as easily as we can now. Mm-hmm. Like it's and it's only speeding up as well. That's it. Like the more." There's more conversations being had. Mm-hmm. There's more information. There's more being shared, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of people out there who are very interested in getting to the bottom of a problem mm-hmm. rather than letting their personal or political beliefs get get in the way. Mm-hmm. Good. And I think that's really exciting for things like this kind of mm-hmm. topic, like health and you know bacteria, virus, etc. Uh, sugar. Yeah. Cigarettes, drugs, mm-hmm. <laughs> antibiotics, is, uh, uh, cars, <laughs> uh, religion, all the rest really. There's so much, so much, uh, information, but it's the way you process information. That's another thing really. How did you access? How do you, um, so the whole uh, course on the human given uh, last week I went to was actually quite interesting because for you to be able to learn, you have to drop your critical mind. Otherwise, you can't learn. To, to, to have access to a new information, you have to drop your critical mind. Otherwise, you don't learn. But uh, that information that you're fed when you've dropped your critical mind could be bullshit. That's the problem, really. Okay? So after, you need to, when you bring back your critical mind after having integrated that information, you need to be able to uh, analyze it and see whether it fits within your uh, way of thinking. And if your way of thinking is completely warped, uh, maybe it fits. And therefore, you think it's great. But actually, it's complete caca del toro. Just to, just to paraphrase the children at home. In a way, okay. So, so what they've been saying. Yeah. What does it mean again? Bullshit. <laughs> anyway, anyway. So uh, I think it's tricky. So you, there's lots of information, but uh, it doesn't matter. There was always a lot of information. Yeah, but the share of it isn't. I know, especially the share of it, the access to it, mm. and the way we go about uh, integrating it 
is what is important to really look into no the information because there's information all the time there's information in the table there's information in the in the graphite of the pain here there's information everywhere okay all the time but we've got access to more information and we need to be able to integrate it with the information we already have on board and how is it we go about doing that and one way to learn you have to drop your critical mind and therefore you're never too sure whether you're going to be sold bullshit or not and then we talked about catextia so how is it you put it in the context and the more aroused you are the more you end up being fed potentially fed bullshit or not being able to see that it's bullshit or right? not even but yeah yeah so if yeah that's it really okay So the way the uh, week goes uh, with the teaching in that human givens is for the whole classroom is really quiet, really settled, really calm. And uh, you drop your critical thinking and you try to absorb that information and correlate it with other parts, really, in a way. And therefore, you're less likely to be indoctrinated. Because one way of learning is to indoctrinate people. That's a big problem, really. So all that sectarian way of going about, and then if there's too much of an emotional uh, link with things, you get too aroused, and if you're too aroused, you need that information in order to prove the whole thing and stuff, really. So it's becoming quite tricky. It's mm -hmm. quite tricky. Um, we need mostly people to try to de-stress and manage their stress their arousal level uh, pretty well and yes strengthening your diaphragm with breathing exercise to diminish the uh, kyphosis the thoracic kyphosis is maybe interesting uh, physically and musculoskeletically speaking but remember we said the breathing is really enabling you to control your arousal level That's the one of the only ways for you to control your arousal level. Yeah, because I also listened to Dr. Chatterjee's latest podcast with, um, I can't remember who, and they were talking about, um, this dude was on there talking about nose breathing, and he was saying um, everyone needs to start, basically everyone needs to start nose breathing. If they um, can. And if they don't have uh, chronic sinusitis, if they don't have uh, distorted concha, if they don't have uh, uh, scarring in there. Uh, like so this guy's called Patrick McCone. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so he's been saying that he thinks nose bre breathing is a is like the ticket to less stress, um, you know, healthier lifestyle, better sleep. Mm -hmm. And so I was listening to this podcast and obviously there might there probably is lots to do with um breathing through the nose that is probably beneficial i've been trying to do it this week and you know my nose is a bit clearer yeah. and i feel like it's uh, it's positive but i think for me it's still all about that polyvagal theory mm -hmm. and controlling your your di your diaphragm in and out because mm -hmm. when you when you breathe through your nose uh -huh. you have a limited input uh -huh. And you, you can't just go like you can and yeah, just yeah. take in as much as you can through your mouth mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you have a limited output as well. Yeah, yeah. And so if you, if obviously with the 7-Eleven breathing we've been doing through the human given stuff and then yeah. obviously I've been trying to do a couple of other bits of uh -huh. breathing. It's quite interesting as you kind of feel your diaphragm controlling the in and out breath. Uh -huh. So you're really controlling it with, with that 
rather than I, before I was kind of controlling it by restricting the flow with yeah. my mouth. Mm-hmm. And it's like when you do it with your nose, it just works really nicely with it. Mm-hmm. So it really, it's really nice. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's interesting to hear like... obviously I don't really know enough about anything to comment in some ways but you know the polyvagal theory of de-arousing someone and really being able to get yourself out of a state of Mm -hmm. stress or arousal as we say it's quite interesting that you know the diaphragm linked with the vagus nerves Mm -hmm. really allows your body to be put in that state Mm -hmm. and people there's a lot of talk about breathing at the moment and maybe some of them don't quite realise there's other theories maybe behind it sort of further mm-hmm. further back in mm-hmm. the biology whether the polyvagal theory is really about the breathing is another uh, story but um because uh, there's, there's two vagus nerves in uh, our uh, subspecies of uh, homo sapiens sapiens and the main thing with that polyvagal theory is part the supra-diaphragmatic area and organs are mostly dealt with with a very old vagus nerve. Okay? And that vagus nerve tend to make us freeze. So we pass out or we freeze. And the infra-diaphragmatic area, our gut, tends to respond via a new, the latest development of the vagus nerve which actually responds with the activation of uh, people's cranial nerves so their accessory nerve their voice with their glossopharyngeal nerves their facial expression their uh, jaw movement their eye position all the rest okay so and that's what uh, gives you gut feeling That's the two different branches of the vagus nerve. And the other part of the polyvagal theory is we used to think that the sympathetic was increasing the heart rate and uh, bringing all the blood away from the muscle, all those kind of things. And then the vagus nerve was actually uh, decreasing your heart rate and actually uh, 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 constricting your uh, bronchi and then bringing the blood away from your muscle into your gut which actually is one way of looking at it. But as according to Mr. Porges with the polyvagal theory, you've got a sympathetic tone that is quite constant. And it's actually your vagus nerve who, who actually um, leaves, who, who, who you suppress your vagus activity, which actually brings the sympathetic activity up. But it doesn't change. It's a, it's a relative difference okay and if you activate your sympathetic your parasympathetic your vagus activity you tend to override the constant sympathetic tone it's a little bit different way that is that is a contribution to the whole thing and yes some of the baroreceptor into your lung and your diaphragm via your vagus via your phrenic nerve are going to have effect on your respiratory center which is located quite close to where your nucleus ambiguous is going to be which is like the wall where the part of your vagus nerve is going to be stemming from in your brainstem 
basically. And that's why there is quite a link between the two, basically. Okay? And there's that rhythmical type thing and the massaging of things. And then you're going to be able to slow a bit your heart rate, diminish the strength of its contraction, uh, contract a little bit your, your bronchi, all the rest. Okay? And then with the other one, you're going to enhance your uh, heart activity. It's a chronotropic uh, because it gets a bit higher. And then you get the strength of the heart who's going to be pumping harder. The uh, tone of your arteries are going to remain in a certain fashion. So your blood pressure goes up. And then it pushes the blood further into capillary beds. And therefore, you get more access to oxygen in your muscles. So you can leg it, really. But it's it's... Quite an interesting thing. So the polyvagal and uh, and that whole breathing technique are a bit linked, but it's not quite the same. The main thing is big. You need to assess the um, how conducive the interaction you can possibly have with the person in front of you is giving you a feedback into your gut. Your brain and your vagus nerve is actually assessing how conducive the interaction is going to be between you and somebody else in front of you via his activation of his cranial nerves. And that's going to give you a gut feeling. And that's helping you in light of that sensation to behave in a certain fashion with that person or not. Okay, IBS, all those kind of stuff, really. So all the whole thing with IBS and the rise of IBS. I've had lots of... Um, uh, one of my uh, neighbors is a general practitioner who's really uh, interesting lady. And she was asking me, how come there are more uh, cases of IBS? She, when she started uh, 30 years ago, there was no IBS at all. But 30 years ago, people knew how to interact with each other. Pretty well. They didn't rely on phones. They were saying they were going to be at a meeting. They'll come. They were a bit more reliable. They were interacting a bit more uh, directly with people. It was a bit less, less um, cut off. And therefore, I think a lot of it is that polyvagal theory is actually people seem to have a bit of a gut feeling that they attribute to their digestive system, which actually is to do with their inability to read properly the uh, way people are interpreting the feedback they get from people in front of them. And that's... That's maybe quite an interesting uh, line of uh, of research into looking at those things, really, because there is definitely a lot of that, really. And then we go back to expectation fulfillment theory of dream. Then we go back to... Uh, I mean, maybe it's, it never ends, really, but... Yeah. Breathing <clears throat> is excellent. Whether you breathe through your nose or your mouth, I think your nose is all the concha and the anatomy of the turbinates... So the the flow of air is going to be actually turbulent and you're going to be able to push the air against all the cilia and the mucus from your nose in order to actually get rid of particulate when you breathe through your nose. And actually it warms air as well to a more body temperature. Therefore, there's less likely to have a, a, a bronchoconstriction uh, as a response to too cold air in a way, okay So you're able to do that with your nose. And because the flow is actually quite subtle and quite um, 
constant, as you say, really. Okay, but that's playing wind instruments and things like that. You have to control your heart breath, and you don't control it with your mass. You control it with your abdomen. That's what you're experiencing when you do the exercises at uh, at your uh, with your personal trainer with a guy from uh, a functional pattern, really. And it's a great thing. It's awesome, really. Hmm. But yeah, it affects your mind a lot and your thoracic kyphosis and the tone of your diaphragm is one thing but it's yeah <laughs> wow. it is all it's good it's good it's good yeah, yeah it's, it's all good it's all good yeah yeah it's all good there's just so much yeah there's a lot at the moment we're really. pretty and friggin complicated being that's it that's it that's it that's it that's it and the main problem we have is the direction we have to take really um, you can do whatever you you're free to do whatever you want to be happy that's what we have to battle against because that's that's not really a direction that's not that's not a life that's not, that's not very dopaminergic so this is how I try and explain that to friends let's see how wrong I am because I completely agree with what you're saying, which is, I think that's, well, I think what you're trying to say is that's probably not the best message to be giving young people or anyone else. And it's not, not the best message, it's a complete shite message. <laughs> because it, it, it's, not, it's not helping anybody. Yeah, that's me sugarcoating it slightly then, yeah. I guess. Um, and the idea behind it is, if you're searching for things that are... Uh, that you, that make you happy mm. uh, for as much as you can be, then it's gonna it's gonna um, that kind of goes against our human biology or neurophysiology, which is that we're not gonna be happy all of the time. It's not really a achievable goal, and happiness or really high, let's say. Um, let's say like high energy high positivity high positive feelings there's there's a limited number of them right there's there's not like a, a huge amount of them and you're not always going to be experiencing them in when you when you do things so like motivation is a really good feeling but it's quite short-lived and then you need to have like a bit of a plan or an idea behind trying to figure out how to bridge that to let's say the reward um, and so, again, kind of bringing it to neurotransmitters, uh, when you talk about serotonin as like mm -hmm. maybe like the base or the cornerstone of the neuro neurological or neurotransmitter system, mm -hmm. that's not really necessarily a happy drug. Mm -hmm. It's more of a stabilizer, and it mm -hmm. kind of ac actually brings the intense positive emotions down a bit, right, I think. Intense, intense negative emotions down uh, and, and, and those and the and intense so like the manic states for example within bipolar from what from what I from what I thought mm -hmm. that serotonin kind of levels those out it doesn't mm -hmm. it doesn't it brings the intense high positive manic states down okay, and okay. brings the the super negative uh, negative emotions mm -hmm. of which there are way more mm -hmm. different types of negative emotions then positive mm -hmm. and it brings them up so it's a bit, bit of a leveler and so in my personal opinion as an example of uh, uh, for a lot of uh, young people who end up going traveling 
because they want to experience a different life and they think they're going to find happiness. Obviously, some of them, and maybe many of them do, but I would say that the happiness doesn't come from being in a new location in the sun. It probably comes from finding meaning and doing something that they can join that cycle of positive and negative emotion Mm -hmm. and work through it until they've they've come to like a big big sort of reward or big end mm-hmm. yeah it's a difficult one because you need to talk about being free and you need to talk about happiness but we talk about meaning and i think that the things that the search for meaning and and happiness is not a search for meaning full stop so that's not something we hope to spend any energy on at all and it's not something we are free to do at all either so uh, yeah I think it's uh, almost the subject for another podcast I'm trying to organize the stuff but it's interesting interesting things Uh, we all we all are trying to be we all are sold um interesting ideas that we end up believing and that we make gospel and that we try to seek and by actually doing it we actually lose ourselves or the idea has been put in implanted in us for the wrong reason in order for us to get lost in a way okay and for us to be able to be more easily aroused and if we're more uh, uh, easily aroused, we can be manipulated more easily. That's a big problem. And we might become a bit more cynical because it's obviously we're not happier. And we end up being quite... Uh, our mood stabilizing mechanism gets a little bit... Um, not a little bit, a lot... Uh, dysregulated. Um, so that's a hierarchical type model type thing really so if serotonin is a tools you can use in order for you to be able to fit in all those uh, uh, pyram- uh, hierarchical pyramids of competence and all the ones you have to contend with in the kitchen in uh, in your work in uh, your relationships in your friendship in uh, riding bikes or doing sports or archery or all those kind of stuff all those ones are uh, hierarchies basically there's a hierarchical thing you have to focus your attention on something that has got more importance than another one otherwise you would not focus on it so there's hierarchies there as well but the whole dopaminergic system which actually orientates you we need to be orientated and uh, uh, when you turn around and chase your own tail you're not very well orientated that's the main problem and the the way our brain functions and give us an idea about meaning and how we extract uh, actions out of uh, things and our 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 body helps us to be conscious of things is uh, quite an interesting way of looking at the world lot really uh, Mr. Peterson articulates that so much better than me in uh, some of his uh, podcasts in the last few years and 
it's really an interesting way of uh, looking at the world basically we are not really very rational we are looking at actions and what things what can we do with things really we see the tool before we see the object all those kind of things really there's, there's an awful lot about that and then the free will and how free your will would be quite interesting so we talked about that a bit all the rest so yeah we have to be there is no there is no meaning in being happy or there is very little meaning in being happy so that's a bit the problem huh? and um, that's not uh, to say we're anti-happy oh, no 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 <laughs> like be really uh, feel really blessed to be able to be happy that's the whole thing really there's a, there's obviously you must be the, the feedback and what you've been going about to uh, uh, in order for you to be able to experience the feeling and the emotion of being happy or the sensation of being happy or the state of mind of being happy is because you've actually seek meaning and you've I mean really because a lot of people who are free to do whatever they want to be happy uh, and they try that uh, I guess uh, not many of them are shouting out there that they are very happy really I don't hear many happy you know like it's not happy so obviously we get a bit misled and we've been sold caca del toro again that's it really um I was re uh, watching a couple of uh, documentaries from Adam Curtis. Uh, there was one called The Trap, which is a bit about that subject. And there's uh, one called Hypernormalization. Mm. And That's the one I watched. Um, the other, there's, another, there's another one as well. Um, I can't remember how it's called which was really quite interesting about all the psychotherapeutical uh, ideas of uh, Freud and his daughter and how he's been applied into uh, advertising and consumerism and the political kind of way and actually how it warped our way of looking at things and how we get confused about our wants and our needs and all those kind of things really. Yeah, we can carry on and on and on talking about that and it's difficult to articulate it because it's it's um, there's so many subsystems that are needed to be ex explained in order to illustrate a bit the whole thing about free will the whole thing about um, meaning the whole model of reality that one can have really and and we haven't had a very rational way of looking at the world for very long and we did not too badly with that way of uh, looking at the world basically and wouldn't without it, that way of looking at the world without mm. having a very rational and a very um, you know that's my phone well no it's not a phone it's something you can call people with or something you can um, do popcorn or cool pizzas <laughs> It's called the oven, something like that, really. The, um, it's too much, almost, yeah. to talk about, to be able to articulate the, articulate the thing, really. To have, we talk about consciousness, we talk about how is it the brain actually functions, and how is it we think the brain functions. 
And that's really two different things, really. And our culture is trying to uh, ask us to look at the world in a certain fashion. And when actually, which actually is good, no bad. It's actually quite good, really. The, the industrial revolution and the light and all that as a, and the scientific method, all those kind of things is, uh, I'm not undermining that. It's very powerful, but it's actually, uh, we're losing a little bit of the uh, meaning in two things. And, and having a bit more meaning would maybe help us to solve some of the problems we are facing at the moment, like climate change, I think, and, or global warming, or whatever, or, uh, that capitalism, uh, thing, or whatever, really. And, and by looking at things a bit differently, I think we ought to, we ought to investigate that and the possibility to look at things in two different ways because we've mm -hmm. got two different ways of looking at it really and if we could um, uh, get used to and exercise our brain to remind ourselves that the way we really look at things and see things is in a certain fashion and that we've uh, superimposed that rational way of doing it um, uh, I think we could benefit an awful lot because we'll end up getting meaning really. A car, a car is, uh, uh, yes, uh, taking us from A to B. It's uh, uh, something that is enabling people to go on holiday. It's something that, that's why it's so pervasive really. It's something that uh, uh, takes people to work. It's people uh, going to uh, take the kids to school. It's uh, <laughs> going to do the grocery shopping. It's uh, uh, to go camping. It's <laughs> all the rest really. It's, That, that's a car and, and all the many other things but it's something that burn fossil fuel and it's the best the is the single most uh, um, the engine the explosion engine is that explosion engine you call it combustion combustion engine is really what has created the most uh, uh, pressure on the climate by actually pumping that much carbon dioxide into and methane and all the other uh, uh, derivatives mm. into the atmosphere really. or our use of it is what ah, that's, that's, that's it that's it that's it that's it it's the use uh, we have of it really and yeah. and or addiction yeah so how is it we go about uh, changing that but it's such a pervasive thing that's why it's so popular that's why everybody wants a car really and the latest uh, ring road around uh, uh, Beijing, I think, is uh, almost uh, uh, one uh, 1,000 kilometers in length, really. You fold, you fold the road to go from uh, uh, Southampton to, uh, to uh, Inverness, and you make it into a circle, and that's, uh, uh, that's the road around uh, the latest road, and it's choker-blocker with cars. The M25 is uh, small stuff, really. But when there's 1,400 million people who want a car, uh, we, we're only 66 million, really. That's, that's, that's the thing, really. There's all the Indians, all the Africans, everybody wants a, ca a car. Everybody wants a car. A microwave, a thing, a stuff. And that's because it is uh, the way it's sold. It's uh, something that simplifies your life and it's so pervasive. It's, uh, it brings you status. It brings you apparently security. It brings you freedom. It mm. brings you happiness. Happiness. Oh, yeah. 
Mm -hmm. That's it. I think it brings you happiness. Uh, that's where we go back to. I think that's where the car came into play. It was to make us happy. Mm. That's it. And it's done a great job. It's done a very we're, great we're, job. We're all walking around unbelievably really, really happy. happy. That's yeah. it. Yeah. I guess it's sold like that. So, it, yeah. It's tricky to articulate it in a few sentences. But or maybe let's think about it and in approach a different, it a different day. Different, different day. But yeah. It's interesting. Good luck to everybody. Wash your hands. Stay safe. And isolate yourself if you're vulnerable or if you think you're vulnerable. Or ask somebody who knows. Nice. Nice way to end it. <laughs>